hate awkwardness. Raise your hand. Awkwardness. Most people. So awkwardness, it's kind of hard to describe, right? But I think we all know what it is. It's when you're in a situation, usually it's social, and it's just super uncomfortable, and it's like embarrassing, and it just kind of makes you like want to curl up. There might be no worse thing that we deal with in everyday life other side, outside of like, you know, real difficulty or trauma than awkwardness. It's one of the most frustrating things in regular life. And when I was a high schooler, um, I remember feeling a ton of that in high school. I felt it a lot in junior high, but especially more in high school. And I especially felt it because there were so many communities that I was a part of. I was a part of musicals and sports teams and church activities where you just constantly meet strangers. And when I was thinking about uh, some things this week, I was thinking of two things. One is there's nothing worse than being in just like an awkward conversation with a stranger. But at the same side, on the other side of the coin, there is nothing that's like more awesome than finding a connection with a stranger at like the height of awkwardness. Like the sheer relief and comfort that you get from that situation is awesome. So I remember like being in college and like talking to this guy who wasn't very talkative and being like, hi, my name's Clifton. He's like, hey, my name is uh, Jimmy, whatever his name was. And I was like, that's cool, Jimmy, where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from here. I'm like, cool. It's just quiet. I'm trying to come up with some like, uh, do you like food? I'm like, oh, I made it worse. That's such a weird question. He's like, I eat, I eat food, I like food. I'm like, cool, cool. It's just awkward again. And I'm just like racking my brain for stuff. I'm like, you like, you like sports? He's like, yeah, I like sports. Which ones, man? Which, which sports? And he's just like, oh, I love basketball. And I'm thinking, I know nothing about basketball, darn it. Okay, we're just waiting again. And I'm just racking my brain. I'm like, just throw something out there, just any lifeline. And I remember throwing out, do you like Minecraft? And his face just lights up. He's like, dude, I love Minecraft. I'm like, no way. And we just exploded in just like sheer joy and comfort. And I still remember that feeling today. And one of the reasons that I was enjoying that feeling that I got from that again is because it was a good reminder of everyday reasons why connection is so important, right? Connecting with other people, whether it's personal relationships as friendships or whether it's whole communities in general. You know, like on one hand, uh, those relationships are super important because it's how we get anything done. You know, on a global level, that's how societies and civilizations work. You don't have one dude who's like really good at sending the mail and all of a sudden everyone gets mailed. You need a ton of people to come together to make post office or you need a ton of people together to create fire departments and police stations and everything you need, right, for like a society to work. And then even on a personal level, the kind of uh, skill you can have to complete certain tasks, so many of them are limited unless you have a team, whether it's like sports or debating or all sorts of things that happen in school or in the community. But even past all of that, just connecting with people on a personal level makes regular things so much sweeter. One thing you might uh, think of, for example, is if you hear like one really good singer, it's just amazing. But if you've ever heard five people get together who are all good at singing and they do acapella and they're good at it, 
the kind of chills that you get are so much more from seeing so many people come together to do one thing. And that kind of reality is also the same joy we have when we partner with people who are interested in the same things as us. And the reason I'm talking about connection is because last week when we started the series on the church, we were talking about how the church is people, uh, not person, but people, not a building, but people. When Christ saves people, he brings them together. And one of the biggest questions that you have to ask is, what makes the community of the church better than any other community in the world? We got a piece of that last week when we said that it's God who created the church, which means an institution of people that God brings together is going to be capable of so many more things and so many more beautiful things than any man-made community. So that's a piece of it. But the other part you have to think of is this. What makes unity, connection in the church, so much sweeter than outside of the church? And that's the question that we have to ask today when we get into our text. So if you have your Bible, go over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And what we're going to be looking at is how the gospel affects the church. And one way you could say it is, today we're going to learn about the gospel for the church. The gospel for the church. And what I mean by that is not that there's multiple gospels. What I mean by that is that there's a good news of the gospel that does something in the church. It affects the church. And one way you could say it is, the gospel for the church is the good news of how the people of God will become unified by God. Not individually united to God, but they will come closer together by God's working. And we're going to read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, down to verse 16. It's also going to be on the PowerPoint for you, but I find it's a lot nicer when you have your Bible in front of you, and so you can read it from your own text so you know where things are on the page. So this is Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 11 to 16. This is Paul, and he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the living God that explains to us how the gospel affects the church. If you wanted to talk about unity, for Paul, he had to talk about two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. If you're familiar, you guys know these two people, Jews, God's people, Gentiles, people who are not Jews, who are not God's people. And the beef between the Jews and the Gentiles was legendary. More than the empire versus the Jedi, more than Democrats versus Republicans. There is no bigger rivalry than Jews and Gentiles. 
And that was for a lot of reasons, but it wasn't for dumb reasons necessarily. It wasn't just because, oh, well, we like this kind of food and you don't like that, or you like this team, you don't like that. This was a serious beef over all of the most important issues in the world. What life is about, who you're living life for, what life is about, what a good life looks like, basically everything you could think of. And it was so serious that the word that Paul uses to describe that rivalry is the word hostility, which is a serious, serious word. You could describe hostility this way, being enemies, uh, people who are openly hostile. So it's, it's no secret. You are constantly talking about your rivalry. Uh, Deep-seated hatred. Now, some of your parents don't like you saying the H word. He's using the H word. Hostility equals hatred. Irreconcilable differences. Uh, personal hatred. So not only collectively hating people like uh, racism, but individually hating every single member that you run into. Um, even another way to describe it, being bent on inflicting harm. So a violent hatred. And even though both of these groups were at fault, there is one group, the Gentiles, who Paul is talking to in this text, that were really on the short end of the stick. They kind of had the worst end of this rivalry because they weren't just beefing with any group of people. They were beefing with God's people, which is a big deal. Because since God had decided to give his blessings to the Jews, and he had explained that his blessings will go out to the nations through the Jews, if the Jews didn't like you, you could not receive God's blessings. Now, supernaturally, God ended up working through his people in the Old Testament in lots of ways, but the normal pattern was God blessed people through the Jewish people. And Paul actually mentions here in this text, in verse 12, five serious consequences to not being able to be close to the Jews. Number one, you were separated from Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't know that Jesus was the Christ, but Christ is just the same word for Messiah. So the Jews had a hope that one person, this Messiah, would come and save all people. But since the Gentiles couldn't be friends with the Jews because the Jews didn't like them, it meant they had no hope of a Messiah. The second consequence was that they were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, which is talking about this idea of citizenship, which, spoiler alert, we'll actually talk about next week. But if you couldn't become a citizen of Israel, then you couldn't be a part of their culture and you couldn't receive their blessings, including the Messiah. Thirdly, he says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. So all of the good promises that God had given to his people were unavailable to the Gentiles because they were at rivals with the Jews. Actually, way back in Romans chapter 9, Paul actually explains uh, all of these promises that are given specifically to the Jews. He says in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is blessed over all, blessed forever. So that's a huge list of all of the promises that the Jews had first dibs on and the Gentiles could not receive because they weren't connected with them. Number four and five, though, kind of sum up why it was so bad to be enemies with the Jews, which is you had no hope and you didn't have God. And the point Paul is making is that's the same thing. Having no God is having no hope. 
So it was really bad for Gentiles to have a rivalry with the Jews, but that didn't mean that the Jews were perfect by themselves. It didn't mean that the Jews were well off. And Paul actually makes mention of that in this text. Uh, what he tries to explain subtly is that the Jews were arrogant. And you can actually see that because in verse 11 and 12, they do a little bit of trash talking to the Gentiles. They had this word for Gentiles, the Jews. They called them the uncircumcised. And they called themselves the circumcised. And the idea is that they were separated from the rest of the world by God, but then these people were not separated unto God and therefore not special. So calling them uncircumcised is basically saying you're not special, but we're special. And the problem was that arrogance got worse and worse as the Old Testament story progresses. And if you read it by yourself, you'll be able to see that. They had all of these special laws because they received God's law. And part of that law was called the ceremonial law. It was basically all of these specific requirements they had because they were God's people. Now, here's the problem. As their arrogance grew, they deformed the purpose of God's law. It became more and more muddled as to the real purpose of it. So as their arrogance grew, they believed the ceremonial law was the thing that made them special to God. But the problem was there's this whole other part of the law they were ignoring, which was the moral law, morality. The ceremonial law was all supposed to point to them about how privileged God was in being gracious to them, not because they were better than any other nation, but as they took great pride in their separation, they missed all of God's purposes, not to exclusivize themselves from the nations for no reason, but to prove God's greatness in their culture and therefore be inclusive of the nations, to bring people in, to show them how God's way was so much better, to show them truth, to show them morality, and most importantly, to show them God. But in their privilege, they lost all that. So the problem was you have two groups of people, Jews, Gentiles. Not only are they not in relationship with each other, but neither of them are in relationship to God, not rightly. So the question is, God has to deal with two things. First, he needs to fix their relationship with God. Secondly, he needs to fix their relationship with each other. And do you see how those ideas like aren't super unconnected? Relationship with God, relationship with people. Your relationship with God affects your relationship with other people. Ask yourself the simple question. If you don't have a relationship with the God who created people, how are you going to have deep relationships with people created by that God? Now, what I don't mean is people who don't know God don't have good relationships. They do. They have real friendships, and they know friendships are important. But the question is, how deep can those friendships go? What needs to unite them? How can they not only get along, but continue to get along? What standard do they need to trust? How much can they forgive the other person, and how much will it exhaust them to retain friendships without God? That's the question. And Paul answers that question here. And what he's going to do is, just like he did actually in verses 1 to 10, he's going to explain the gospel. But what he's going to do is he's going to weave that together with how the gospel not only fixes your relationship with God, but it fixes relationship with other people, with other Christians. And he starts that in verse 13 into the beginning of verse 14, where this is what he says. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The way that relationships get fixed is the same way our vertical relationship with God is fixed, which is in Christ Jesus. And when he gets into that conversation, he wants that to be especially clear to the Gentiles. Because as he says in verse 13, they were far off. Now that's us, right? None of us, as far as I know here, are Jewish. Which means, as we explained, it was basically impossible. Outside of God's supernatural acting or his specific group of individual Jewish people who were being faithful to God's promises and covenant, it was basically impossible to get saved at a certain period of time because the Jewish people were bad representatives of God. But now in Christ, those people who were far off, another country away, so impossibly removed from God, now they have an equal opportunity to come to God's throne and to be forgiven and to have relationship all through Christ. And what he says in verse 13 and 14 is it's not just because of what Christ did. He says it's by the blood of Christ, which means the death of Christ. Because Christ died, the punishment we receive for our sins is put on Christ instead of us. That's what Christ did for us. But it's not just what Christ did that unites us. It's also what Christ continues to do. Does that make sense? Because in verse 14, he says he is our peace. He didn't say he did something so that we could have peace, but he is our peace right now. Right now, Christ didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and is currently at the right hand of the Father and continues to proclaim the gospel from heaven. So it's not just the gospel that saved you. It's Christ himself that saves you and continues to tell you and the whole world the gospel through his people and supernaturally that that would stick through his spirit by his word and what he does is he continues to weave this together gospel relationship vertical relationship with god is fixed and therefore relationship with each other even jews and gentiles that is fixed too and when he goes in in the text, in the rest of 14, all the way to verse 16, he explains four ways that that happened. He'll explain a gospel truth, and then he'll explain how it fixes relationships. Gospel, vertical, therefore fix horizontal, people beside us, other believers. The first way he does that is he said he broke the wall. There wasn't a literal wall between Jews and Gentiles, but there was a metaphorical wall in the sense of this thing that made the rivalry, and it was this false belief about God's law. That was this thing that created a wall between Jews and Gentiles. But now in Christ, the ceremonial law has no more use, and the moral law, being a perfect person, the requirement to get into heaven, that was fixed by Christ. So instead of a wall, we now have Christ, who doesn't separate people, he unites them. He fixes the issue both of them had, which is being righteous before God. And since Christ fixed that, both people can come to him and meet each other in the middle. The second way he explains, which is just explaining the same thing, the way he did that is by abolishing the law. He made it, it's, uh, that word abolishing, it doesn't mean blow up like, like kaboom. It means uh, made it null and void. 
no longer important. Now, he's not talking about morality, the moral law. He's talking about the ceremonies, all these specific practices. All of those are unnecessary now because you don't have to be a Jew to get saved. You become a Christ follower. You become a Christian. That's how you become saved. So the ceremonial law is no longer important. The third way that he brings people together is probably the biggest and most profound statement in this text, and it's this, that in himself he created one new man. Now he's not saying he created multiple new believers. That's explained in other places in the Bible that we have been a new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Christ we are a new person. What he's talking about here is how all Christians come together and are so close they can be called one person. One. I like a commentator named Kent Hughes. He explained it this way. Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half-breed. He made an entirely new man so that we are God's masterwork, a new race in Christ Jesus. Being a Christian is like being in a new race. You know, in a lot of relationships that we have, we have to do this thing called compromise. It means I got preferences and you got preferences. I have opinions, you got opinions. If we're going to be really close friends, I got to get rid of some of my opinions. You got to get rid of some of your opinions. I got to prefer some of your stuff. You got to prefer some of my stuff. That's how most healthy relationships work. That's not how people become Christians. It's not Jews, get rid of some of your ceremony, but then you keep some and then you give it to the Gentiles. Gentiles, you got some good ideas, you come forward, you give us your ideas, and then you get rid of some of your ideas because some of them are just super weird, and then we'll be friends. That's not how Christianity works. The way it works is Christ died for you. Then Gentiles, you die to yourself, and you adopt Christ's new standard because it's perfect. Jews, you die to yourself, you adopt Christ's standard because it's perfect. You meet in the middle. You meet in Christ. And it's not because you're good enough to get rid of all your preferences. It's that the Spirit of God makes the gospel come alive in your heart. And you see the greatest thing that could ever happen is to die to yourself, which is now spiritually possible because Christ died for you. And the unity that that provides is so close that you can be called one new person together. And the fourth way he sums all of this up is in verse 16, where he says this, we are reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. We become one because God has connected us to him. It's like a triangle if you think about it. Sometimes people use this illustration for marriage. You have two people in the bottom. In a marriage illustration, it's uh, two spouses. But in the, this illustration, I'm thinking Jews and Gentiles. And God is here at the top. And as the two of you go closer to God, you inevitably become closer to each other. Since Christ reconciled us to him, the more we pursue him, the closer we grow to each other. This is how Mark Dever sums it up. He says, when the gospel restores our relationship with God, it also restores fellowship between us and other redeemed sinners. When we abandon our hostility toward God, we also abandon our hostility with one another. Being reconciled to God then means being reconciled to everyone else who is reconciled to God. That's what Paul is trying to understand. If you are a believer, you're not on your own island because you weren't recreated that way. You were created with an insatiable thirst, 
not just to worship Christ, but to love one another who are also saved by Christ. And you create something brand new that is so much more beautiful than any community in this world can lay claim to. That is an important part of the gospel. I would say that's an essential part of the gospel. So remember this idea as we take that text and then we try to apply it in like actual life and see how this isn't just information, but this has to like affect us. So this is the idea, vertical relationship restored, then everyone who has that vertical relationship restored, horizontally, the relationships are also restored. You know, give me a nod if you're, if you're tracking with this idea. Okay, I see some of you, that's good. So this is the thing, the church is still messy, right? A lot of you grew up in church. Some of you have been to multiple other churches, right? And the church is a mess. I heard a stat that was from like 20 years ago that said there are 5,000 different Christian denominations in the world. And I can only assume there's more than that now. So there's churches that can't even fellowship with one another because they believe radically different things. And then you don't even have to look at the global church. You can look at every individual church. And you know what you won't see? Every single person linking hands and singing kumbaya. Because people still have differences with other people. And becoming a Christian doesn't make you perfectly get along with every other person. Does that track? Because you, you have to have an answer for that. Because someone's going to say, I've been to church and people burned me. I've been to this church and people didn't love me. I've been to that church, people didn't serve me. And that's real. And that's not necessarily unfounded in many different places. So you need to ask yourself, when you're talking about the church, why is the church different? There's a guy I quote to you guys a lot, C.H. Spurgeon, with good reason, because he was someone who thought about this question. And in response to that question, he still said, you know what? The church is the dearest place on earth. And he wanted to explain that to people who understood that the church is also still messy. This is what he said. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you almost feel glad that you haven't. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I never would have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I would have spoiled it for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, which means don't worry that you're not a perfect person. In fact, don't even worry if you're a complete mess. For the church is not an institution for perfect people but it is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, they're still sinners and they need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep and it is the home for Christ's family. Let me sum that quote up with this. It's not an accident that the church is messy, and Christ didn't miss something in the gospel when he didn't make us perfect people when he saved us and brought us together. It's actually the messiness and believing that you're messy 
That's the opportunity to show how beautiful the church is. It is necessary. Not that we sin or that we enjoy sin. We don't. We hate it. We fight it. We try to kill it. Supernaturally, we're given the ability to attack it. But we admit we're not perfect. Because it's not about us, right? You could say it this way. The vertical relationship fixes the horizontal relationship by the gospel in two ways. Number one, it reminds us all who we are. And second, it reminds us who Christ is. The gospel reminds us who we are, which changes our relationships, and it tells us who Christ is, who also changes our relationships. Those are the two things you need to understand when people accuse you that the church isn't as good a place as we know it is. So this is the first part, which is the gospel. The gospel tells you who you are. If you believe the gospel, this is who you are. You are a mess. I'm a mess. When you become a Christian, not all your sin goes away. Though God has promised sanctification and the improvement of certain sins, sometimes in certain areas, that takes a long time. It takes a long time to get over certain levels of brokenness in your life. But you know how you start overcoming them? It's not ignoring that you're broken. And I promise you, the more you go into the world, you will see people will absolutely tell you the way they deal with their problems is ignoring them or pretending they're justified in everything they do. That's not the church. The church admits its brokenness because that is like step one to the gospel. And you know what happens? It means I don't go to people to fix me. I go to Christ to fix me. And when other people around me who also need fixing also point me to Christ, that totally changes your life. In James chapter 4, James tries to tell the church he's talking to why their church is so messy. And he says because they have passions, they have jealousies, they have rivalries. And in a nutshell, what James is trying to say is this. The reason you have so much issues with each other isn't just because you're fighting over all these unimportant issues. It's because you expect all of the people around you to be Jesus. Everything about your relationship is expectation. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Why aren't you doing this? And if you believe the gospel and you know you're a mess, what's going to happen more? You expect more from other people or you expect more from yourself? And the reason knowing you're a mess makes you want to do more rather than expecting more is because you know how much has been done for you. The more grace you know you've received, the more inexhaustible ability you have to give grace to other people. And if the world doesn't have the gospel, what standard of grace do they have to give anyone else? Paul actually talks about this just a chapter later at the end of chapter 4. In the beginning of verse 5, he says this, Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness and grace on my vertical relationship gives me the ability to give grace and forgiveness to everyone beside me. He continues in verse 5, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Why? Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. When I've received amazing love, 
indefinably good love. I have a standard to love people. And you know what? When I see other messy people admit they're messy and they have that same standard of love by which they love me and I know I'm a sinner and I don't deserve it, that changes you. That builds you up and sanctifies you and is treated as a gift from God the more and more you spend time with those people. That's why the church is so important. It's not just because you need Christian friends who act nice and who are obedient to each other. It's because you need a picture of Christ's grace to you every single day. And the reality is that's not a warning to you. It's because those are the greatest relationships you could possibly have. Because when messy people look like Christ, you don't ever want to be away from them. That's what a church is supposed to look like on a Sunday morning. People who worship God for the grace they've received in the gospel, and then naturally, like buckets that are full of water, overflow in love to the people around them. That's why you need to know who you are in the gospel. But here's the second thing, okay? You need to not just know who you are. You also need to look to Christ and know who Christ is. You need to know who Christ is. Remember, it's not just what Christ did that saved us. It's what Christ continues to do. He didn't just give us peace. He is our peace. Remember he says that in verse 14a? He is our peace. This is something that Christ tries to tell his disciples when he tells them in the upper room that he's going to die and be crucified. And they think to ourselves, the God of the universe who took on human flesh, who came to die from us, is going to leave us. The greatest friend in the world is going to leave us, and we'll never see him again until we die. Of course, they are super, super sad. But this is what Christ tells to them in John 14, starting in verse 19. This is what he says. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So how are we going to see Christ? He explains here, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's like a weird, confusing Rubik's Cube of a statement, right? I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is what he's talking about. Christ is going to live again and go to the Father. He explains later, his spirit is going to come and rest with his people. This is what he's saying. You will always understand and know me as my love supernaturally impacts you and you become Christ-like examples to other Christians. That's how you see Christ never leave a church. That's how you see Christ every time you come to church on a Sunday morning is the entire power of Christ's love in the Trinity the perfect example of unity gives unity with these people supernaturally. He continues to explain this in verse 15, in verse nine, chapter 15, verse 9, where he says this, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So the perfect love of God didn't just give us a source of power to love each other, the supernatural ability to love each other, it also gave us a standard. If you obey my commandments, people will see methodologically. They'll have a method, 
a standard by which they can see the love of God come out. If I listen to the Bible and see how I'm supposed to behave and trust that God will give me the power to obey those commands, I can be a picture of Christ to other people. Other Christians can be an example of Christ to me. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense because the world doesn't have that standard or that source. This is why you need to be at a church, whether it's here or when you graduate, that knows the gospel and loves Christ. That knows the gospel and loves Christ. Because you know what? Any church that's really theologically gifted that knows all the facts of the gospel but doesn't result in Christ-like love to one another, it's not enough. It's not enough. I heard an example in a commentary of an Australian pastor who had a team of boys playing a sport. Half of the boys were white and the other half were aboriginal. And when he put them all on a bus, he noticed that one half of the bus, all the white boys sat, and all of the aboriginal boys were on the other side of the bus. And something snapped when he saw the disunity between them. So he stopped the bus, took them all off the bus, and had them by the side of the road. And he looked at all the white boys. He said, what race are you? They said, we're white. He said, no, you're not. You're green. Because I only have green boys on my bus. Now get your butt back on the bus. They go back on the bus. He looks at the aboriginal boys. What race are you? We're black. No, you're not. You're green. I only have green boys on my bus. Get back on the bus. For about 30 minutes, his theory worked. All of the boys who are all green were a little bit comfortable mixing up. You know what happened after 30 minutes? After 30 minutes, one of the boys stood up in the back of the bus. He said, okay, all the light green boys on this side and all the dark green boys on this side. What I'm saying is no human has the ability to bring union the way Christ does. No matter how much creativity, no matter how many facts you have, that's not ever going to be enough to have unity. Because you know what? People have division for good reason, and people have divisions for really dumb reasons. But what Christ does is he synthesizes all of that supernaturally so that you can be removed from certain people for the right reasons, but you can be unified to true Christians for the right reasons. Christ has the ability, the source of power, and the standard of power to make that happen. Maybe you have seen a messy church. Maybe you think our church is messy. And you know what? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. But the messiness of that church or this church should make you feel more comfortable. It makes me feel more comfortable. That's what Spurgeon was saying. I want to be around messy people who know that they're messy and rest in the gospel for satisfaction and have unity with those people who know where all of life is going, who know that my expectations should be on my own growth before anyone else's growth. A place where I can have real humility, real joy, real friendships, not just because Christ is doing something in me, but he's doing something in us. And he's building us into something together. And all of that is founded on the truth of the gospel and the person the gospel points towards. Does that make sense?
The reason I'm specifying is sometimes I feel like when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about making sure we have a message that's put together in the right way so that we get saved. It's like a secret password. So if I have one fact wrong, it's not the real gospel, so I don't get saved. And the reason this idea of Christ as the person is so essential is because when you know Christ and you're in a church that loves Christ, your knowledge of the gospel continues to be clarified. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to have facts of the gospel wrong. I'm saying certain facts you have wrong will be clarified as you love Christ and spend time with people who love Christ. That will clarify an understanding of the gospel for you. That will clarify the importance of the church. And most importantly, that will clarify why Christ is worthy of worship. Let me briefly end with this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He said, when the shepherd calls his sheep to him, they inevitably come nearer to each other. So when you come to Christ, you are at the same time drawn nearer to others who have come to him. This is what I want to end with. If you've been looking for Christ, don't expect him to perfectly show up in people. Don't expect that just because the church is the most beautiful place on earth, it's not the perfect place on earth. But the reason we come together, the reason the church loves to congregate, and if you're at this church, I know you've seen it, because people stay hours after service is done, and there's a reason for that. And it's not because we expect everyone else around us to be Jesus. It's not that we have expectations of everyone around us. It's because we have expectations of Christ who has never failed to meet far beyond our greatest expectations. For joy, for completeness, for fulfillment, for pleasure, and for the greatest friendship you'd ever know. And that friendship creates these friendships that are so much greater than the world has to offer. What we're going to cover next week is we're going to cover how the gathering of the church, how those relationships end up being a demonstration to the world, that they will want to join that fellowship, not for people, but for the Savior we worship. But if that's going to happen, you need to know how it is that the church can possibly become the church, whether it's a church that is growing or a church that needs to start growing. It's that we have love from God that has been revealed to us perfectly in Christ that is so amazing that no matter how many divisions there are among us, it is by conformity to the gospel to show us a perfect way of life in Christ and through the supernatural power that Christ has given us. It's those things that make us come together so that you can experience that the church is the dearest place on earth. So let's pray.